All right, let's go ahead and pick up in Acts chapter 7, um, starting with verse 54. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter here. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, that is, at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Mm. Thus, we have the uh, first martyr, sometimes called the, the proto-martyr, Stephen. Now, let me uh, hand uh, send over to you guys, if you'd like to have it, the uh, handout. And I'll also um, share my screen as well so that you're able to um, follow along up in the chat. Um, I just posted the, uh, the handout for today. Let me go ahead and, and share it right now. We're all following along. Okay. So number two, then on the, on the handout there, Stephen receives a vision of the exalted Lord. So here, Stephen has all the, the people that are grinding their teeth at him. And just as an aside, who's they? It says when they heard these things, they were enraged. Who's the they that it's referring back to that when they heard this, they were enraged? You kind of have to look, go back quite a ways to figure out who it is. But if you go all the way back to um, the end of chapter six, um, really is, is what it is. Um, you see that all of these basically opponents of, of the Christians were, um, you've got the elders and the scribes um, along with the council. So these are all the same kind of characters that we had aligned against the Lord Jesus. Now they're also aligning themselves against Stephen and the other, and the other disciples. And so uh, that's who the they is now, because that's who Stephen was addressing. And now they are, not happy with what he had to say. They're enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But Stephen's full of the Holy Spirit, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That that place of the right hand is this exalted place of honor. Maybe you remember the time when uh, James and John come to Jesus and they say, uh, "Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you." It's like, okay, what is it? They say, "We want to be at at your right hand." It's that place of honor and majesty. Psalm 110 is the most quoted uh, passage from the Old Testament in the entire New Testament. It's quoted the most in the New Testament, where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay? This is the Father speaking to the Son, sit at my right hand. Romans 8, Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So that place at the right hand means that he is also our intercessor, the one who ever lives to advocate for us. And then Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it's um, that um, uh, posture 
of him sitting down at God's right hand is basically, it's kind of like the vivid uh, picture of Jesus's words, it is finished. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now it's interesting, and I, I note this in passing, it says that Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I'm looking around, I'm comparing other um, scriptures, reading commentaries. Nobody has a real answer for why he's standing. So I put it to you guys. Do you have any thoughts on why it might be that um, Stephen sees Jesus standing rather than sitting at the right hand of God, which is the posture that he's in, in all the other places where it mentions him being at God's right hand? Anybody have a, a thought? Feel free to um, just speak up, or if you want to um, throw something into the chat, that's fine too. Pastor? Yeah. Are you familiar with Richard Wormbrand and his Tortured for Christ? Yes. Yeah, okay. the Voice of the Martyrs. Right. And uh, he visited our church a number of years ago, and he was saying that this particular scripture where the Lord is standing shows um, something of honor, uh, that it, instead of just seem, simply being seated, he stood yeah. to honor Stephen. And that was kind of his perspective on that. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I, that's also really cool that Richard Wormbrand's been to our church. I didn't know that. Not, uh, that here or was that in downtown? downtown? St. Matthew and Holt. Yeah. Nuts. Okay. Um, in any event, that's a beautiful picture. And that makes a lot of sense that here it's the Lord Jesus honoring Stephen, the first martyr, the first one to um, lay down his life for the sake of the Lord. Yeah. I, that makes sense to me. It's like the Lord is here almost like rising to receive him. Like rising to receive him into yeah. eternity. Yeah, rising to receive him. Mm -hmm. Like Very we good. would do if a guest comes to our house, we wouldn't just stay in our seat. We'd get up and. Yeah. That's what we mean. I like that. That's really good. Good. Any other thoughts on that? So here Stephen gets this vision of the Lord. And I think you guys are, are spot on of seeing the Lord in this place of honor. So it affirms Jesus's presence as the exalted son of man, as it says. And the son of man also is a, an exalted eschatological title. That is, it's a title associated with the end times. Um, Jesus himself uses this title as much as any other in referring to himself as the son of man. It goes back to the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 7. Interestingly, in the context of Daniel, the son of man, that title gets used in reference to the vindication of God's people in the face of their enemies. So the son of man is invoked as the one who's going to vindicate the people of God when they have been at, at Daniel's time attacked by the uh, oppressing enemies. But now, you know, for, for Stephen to see Jesus as the son of man, of course, Jesus himself used it and it stirred up such ire. It's implicitly, it's suggesting we are the ones who are to be vindicated by God. Whereas you guys who would um, fashion yourselves as the religious leaders, you're the ones who now put yourself in a position of opposing God. So it's quite a move that um, that's done there. Okay. So then going on verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Much more about that guy shortly. But uh, number three on the handout here, um, I say that the mob shows the shadow side of homothumadon. 
The mob shows the shadow side of homothumadon. Now, this is um, you know one of our favorite words. We came across this word at the very beginning of Acts. Anybody recall the meaning of homothumadon? That's Greek, by the way. That's not an English word, so um, don't feel like why don't I recognize that? But does anybody recall from our earlier discussions? Yeah, in uh, rushing together. Yeah, literally a rushing together, and then metaphorically or figuratively, it's being of one mind or of one accord. So it's most commonly used to describe the Christians and the early church and how through the power of the spirit, they were all with one accord. They were all working together. They were all moving in the, in the same direction. Homothumadon typically is a positive term to describe Christians. But here we see kind of the shadow side of homothumadon. It's homothumadon off the rails, when that rushing together is off the rails. And you notice that they are in verse 57, they stop their ears and they rush together, okay? So this is like its literal meaning, or you just imagine a mob all moving together, suddenly charging, right? Like in um, the ancient times when there would be the invading army, where they're all moving together to try and you know break down the, the gates of the city or, or what have you. So they're all rushing together at... Stephen. And then even more poignantly, it says, they're crying out with a loud voice and they're stopping their ears. So you have this picture of human nature in, in its sinful manifestation where it's just la, 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 not going to hear it, right? We don't want to hear what, what you have to say. And, you know, Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians 2.14. says, the natural person which is to say humanity in its natural sinful nature. Nowadays we use natural usually in a, a real positive way, but as Paul uses it, uses it there, it's in a negative way. The natural person, the person who has not yet been reborn by the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he isn't able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So as Paul puts it there, to, apart from the Spirit of God, we are all like that. You know, we can't, we can't hear God's word. We can't see the things of God. Paul takes it one step further in Romans 8 when he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And that really comes out, um, again, with these opponents coming after Stephen, not just refusing to hear what he has to say, but then becoming violent toward him and actively um, pursuing him. So, um, this is just this vivid, uh, pointed demonstration of sinful man at his worst, coming coming after Stephen. Pastor? Yeah, go ahead, Chip. I think also it, it sort of, the whole stopping of the ears, it seems super childish, you know, like, sure. nah, 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 nah. but I think also it, it, it impresses upon the, uh, how much the, 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 uh, the uh, Jews valued uh, the spoken word and 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 what that meant for the word of God to come to them, you know. Sure. And so they knew if they if they listened to them, you know, that's how you influence people. That's how God comes right. to you, you know. And so there's also like you know we are saying, basically saying like we don't think God's coming through this. We're going to stop our 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 ears. So it's it's I think it's more than just a childish response. It's, yeah, it's, I think I think you're right, and uh, and maybe it's not only. We don't think that it's God speaking through him, but maybe also we're worried that he might be, and right. we don't want to hear it, right? This is, right. This is something that is really challenging us, and we're, we're concerned about it. Yeah, Ann. 
So, um, I, and I, I'm sorry, I, I had to answer someone really quickly there. Um, but did you say whether or not that was a, a cultural thing, the stopping of the ears? I did not. And I, I don't know the answer to that. That's a good, uh, that would be a, a good question. Something to look like, into further. If that's some kind of a gesture that means something like, you know, with the sackcloth and ashes, that's a gesture right. that means something or, right. you know. Right. No, that's a good question. I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I mean, part of me thinks it's just kind of a, a natural human reaction, but maybe it's something more than that. Maybe it is a, a specific cultural response as well. Good question. So here you have the mob is now coming after Paul and um, it just with, with one accord. And it shows how, you know, groups working together that can be really positive or it can be really negative, right? And when there's that mob mentality, everybody striving together. And this is actually, you know, this is what we call social media, right? <laughs> everybody, now we're going to all push together. And uh, it's kind of scary. But what? in the midst of all of that, you have the, the calm and coolness. You have the equanimity of Stephen. So as they were stoning Stephen, he's calling out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, you hear this, you, you see this depiction of Stephen in his dying moments. And who does he sound like? Jesus himself. He sounds like Jesus. Um, so to turn to the handout again, uh, on page two, number four on your handout, I write, Jesus' followers die like Jesus. And we see this with Stephen in a couple of ways here. First of all, as they're stoning Stephen, well, um, it's not a word, but just an action or an inaction, as it were. As like Jesus, Stephen is not fighting back. He's not, um, you know, calling down curses on these people. But he is simply like a lamb being led to the slaughter, receiving what's coming to him. And um, saying to the Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, what's so fascinating about this, and, and maybe you picked up on this. So this is coming from Psalm 31. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It was a very common uh, bedtime prayer for Jews. Into, into your hand, I commit my spirit. But Jesus invokes that psalm in his dying words, calling out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Stephen says something very similar, but he doesn't say, Father, into your hands or Lord, into your hands. He says, Lord Jesus. And this is another one of those um, subtle ways in which Luke is showing us and conveying to us that Jesus is not just a, a great teacher not just a beloved leader, but he is this very son of God. Okay? He is receiving Stephen's spirit, even as Jesus committed his own spirit to the Father. Now Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, is able to receive Stephen. I think, again, going back to that standing posture, that makes a lot of sense. And then, and yeah, the, is there any significance in the taking their, clo taking their clothes, their outer clothes off? Um... It said they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And right. I didn't find anything that shows any significance for the removal of their clothes. Right. I mean, my thought of it was just that it was kind of like we're we're getting to work here. Um, you know, we're we're taking off our 
uh, our garments from for worship or what have you, and now we need to visit justice on him. And so um, we don't want to be in our we don't want to be in our Sunday best, so to speak. Okay. Um, yeah. So and they do that and they lay it at at Saul's feet. He becomes the the coat rack and the accomplice to this whole thing. Right. Um, but then Stephen it says. <laughs> Was that a sneeze or was that a, a sorry? Okay, okay. <laughs> that's an, that's another way to say you have a, a question. If you need, just go ahead and sneeze. Um, I thought I had muted, so sorry. That's okay, <laughs> um, but then Stephen cries out, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." And this too is echoes Jesus's words from the cross: "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And here Stephen is pleading and interceding on behalf of his persecutors, on behalf of his killers. It's such a powerful moment. And for that to be the very first martyr of the church really sets the tone and, and sets the stage for how Christians are going to be going forward. And ever after, Stephen is going to be, in many ways, the model martyr for Christians, that we strive to have that kind of, of boldness and faithfulness all the way to the end. It, it seems impossible to do, um, but Stephen was clearly supernaturally and, and spiritually empowered by the Lord uh, in order to in order to do that. Yes, sir, um, comments back. or questions about Stephen's uh, stoning there his and his death. Going back to uh, the comment that was made about um, Jesus standing to receive him, you can you know you don't get the whole conversation there, but it's like Jesus is saying. Uh, uh, welcome thou good and faithful servant. Yes. Very good. You know, yep, receiving right. him. And, and, and I, I love that you continued that whole passage uh, from, Oh, I don't see it now. Uh, uh, where um, it says, and they divided, they cast lots to divide his garments. And here, here are these um, religious leaders really casting stones yes. and riding themselves from their garments. I mean, oh. there's all kinds of interesting little juxtaposes that are, that are sort of teasing out the real story of what Jesus did on the cross. Yes. That's a great, that's a great connection. Instead of casting lots, now they're, now they're casting stones and still the, the garments are there as well. And uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's an accident. Remember the author of the book of Acts is um, the gospel writer Luke as well. And so especially where we find those, those continuities in language from Luke to Acts, um, I think it's fair to say that those are not accidental and that Luke is, is purposefully drawing out these um, connections. Was there another um, question or comment? Yeah. Does this imply that Stephen was at, at the crucifixion of Jesus? Oh, because he know, he's kind of yeah. saying, <clears throat> um, it could suggest that, sure. Um, I think that's that's definitely a possibility. Um, going back to chapter six, when it, it talked about the qualifications of um, the um, the deacons, what we call kind of the the deacons, um, it was well. So when it came to the apostles, they needed to be there with you know um, and uh, wit be witnesses all along the way. It doesn't say the same thing about the deacons. They needed to be full of good re good repute and full of spirit and of wisdom. But um, I think that's certainly a possibility. Sure. Hans, do you have a question? Yeah, they, uh, it says that they put, the witnesses put their cloaks at the feet of them. Yes. Uh, isn't it true that the witnesses had to cast the first stone? Yes, that's right. 
That's so it's right. like, these are the guys that were the accusers. Now yeah. they have to be the executioners as well. That's right. And uh, they've, they've got skin in the game in that respect. And it seems like they're all too willing to do that. Um, but you're right. And so this you know, brings to mind, uh, of course, the um, famous story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And uh, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Who's going to do it? And, uh, but in this case, they're, they're ready and eager to do it even. So thank you for bringing that up. That's very good. Good. Okay, let's move into, uh, into chapter 8 now. And that first more thing, Pastor, I love how Luke is really foreshadowing Saul here. I mean, he's clearly crafting a story to, uh, to get his readers engaged. This, yes. is, this is not just a reporting of the facts, just throwing them down. Like he's clearly trying to weave a story here. And Paul is the main character, you know? Yes. Yeah, so. that's right. And um, so spoiler alert, Saul is later going to be Paul. Um, but yeah, <laughs> right. but uh, you're right. I mean, this is an artful weaving together of the story. And he's just now going to deftly introduce this character who's going to be so important. It's still going to be a full chapter before we really get into Saul and his conversion. But he's introduced here as we, we see um, how he, he is... He is clearly one of these terrorists coming after the church. And that, that brings us into uh, um, chapter 8, these first few verses. So it says, and Saul approved of his execution. Uh, as an aside, one of the commentaries, an older commentary I read says, said, surely this must be the most egregious chapter break in the New Testament. As it has this first line connected to chapter 8 rather than the end of chapter 7. But be that as it may. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay. So we're getting this glimpse of the kind of character that Saul is. As he'll say later in his letters in Philippians, he was zealous. And zealous zeal is something is, um, uh, a characteristic that can be positive, but it can also be negative. As Paul will say in Romans 10, it's a zeal not according to knowledge. As now he is uh, pursuing and persecuting the early Christians. Um, but what's fascinating here is how the Lord is using this persecution. So to go back to our handout here, number five, persecution precipitates the promise of Jesus. Very pleased with that sentence. Uh, persecution precipitates the promise of Jesus. In other words, it took this persecution from um, by the opponents to the church to force them into where the Lord was leading them, see? Because to go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you got it here. Um, Jesus had said to the disciples right before his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here we're seeing this next cycle of the mission, where the first seven chapters have focused on um, happenings in and around Jerusalem. But now 
the, the mission is moving outward to, to Judea and Samaria, as it says here in verse 1, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And later on, it'll move towards what at that time was considered more or less the end of the earth, out toward Rome. Okay, So that's kind of a structure for the whole book of Acts. And so Acts chapter 8 is really a, an inflection point for the story, as now we're moving into the next section where Saul, later Paul, is going to be the, uh, the main character, along with, with Peter, who will continue to um, have a, a, an important role. But we're seeing now the Lord uses this persecution to push them out. This is what Jesus had said to them as well in Matthew 10. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So this sending out, this persecution is, is pushing the church out, scattering them out, and through that, further carrying out the, the mission of God. And I brought this up in a, a recent sermon as well. When we think about this moment, this season, where we're not able to gather, but we are scattered, as I've been saying, the, you know, the church in exile, so to speak, it's a, it's a similar kind of thing, not nearly as um, grievous as it was for the church here. But it's this kind of time when now we're scattered each to our own homes and to our neighborhoods. And it's an opportunity for us to be continuing to spread the word. I think um, to bring it up to date, virtually, the message is going out a lot further. Um, and a lot more people are hearing the gospel and, and being exposed to the good news than they had been before. Because it's all over the place on, on the internet. They can't avoid it. So it's just interesting how the Lord uses these moments when it looks like, wow, this is the worst thing that could have happened. Now this persecution comes, the people are scattered. He turns it on its head and uses it for the blessing of his people and the furtherance of, of his mission. So comments or questions on, on that and what the Lord is up to here through that, that persecution? Well, a number of years ago, um, when the evangelism explosion was happening in the churches, and that was the key verse that the apostles stayed there to encourage those who were imprisoned and everything. But everybody except the apostles were scattered. Yep. So showing that distinction between the apostles, they were called to do something different from everybody else. Yep. It's the lay person who needs to do the scattering. Yes, very good. And this is what uh, you think of Ephesians 4 when it says, um, you know, the Lord bestows his gifts on his people and he gave to some you know to be apostles evangelists uh pastors and teachers why to equip the saints and you get this picture here from from acts 8 the purpose of the apostles really the forerunners of uh, of pastors was to equip god's people now to go out into all the world and to spread the good news it's not to say that the apostles themselves didn't take um responsibility for that too they did and we see that throughout the book of Acts. But it's not only them by any stretch of the imagination. And so that continues to be the case where the, the calling of the pastor is to equip God's people, to build them up, and then to send them out so that in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their vocations, they're able to spread the good news, preaching the word. Good. Thank you, Carla. Other uh, comments or reflections on, on uh, the persecution and scattering of the church here? Pastor Ryan, that Acts 1 uh, passage that you put there has the word witnesses, which is kind of benign in our understanding today, yeah. but believe underneath of it is the Greek martyr. Right, that's right. Uh, and uh, boy, does that ever uh, have, a, have a stark resonance back then to uh, yes. the end of chapter 7. Yes, 
That's a great point. A great point. Um, so um, just to, again, as, as Pete said, so the Greek word for witness is martyr. And so there's this, this um, indissoluble link between the witness of the faith and the martyrdom of God's people. That's not to say you have to become a martyr to be a witness. Of course, that's not the case. But preeminently, this has been true throughout history. Through, it's through martyrdom. And we'll have more to say about this in a minute. Um, that there's this incredible witness made for um, for the church and uh, and for the Lord. Because, well, one way to get at that is to ask, you know, was Stephen, just take Stephen, was Stephen irrational to lay down his life and to allow himself to die for the sake of the gospel? And from the per perspective of the world, they would say, yeah, that's silly. Why would he do that? Um, but from Stephen's perspective, from, and the perspective of all Christians, no, it's perfectly reasonable and rational because he has a Lord who laid down his life for him and who has risen and ascended and reigning at the right hand of the Father. So Stephen knows, no, this is, this is my portal into eternal life and I need not fear. So the witnesses are also well, martyrs and vice versa. Yeah. Chapter seven is this perfectly rational and reasonable response that he gives to they, you know, the chief priests and elders and, and uh, the scribes, and I mean, he—I don't think he's giving the speech thinking he's laying down his life. He's giving the speech as a witness to not only the word of God but what he sees in Jesus yeah. uh, as the fulfillment of the word of God. And it's—it's—it's it's, it's no good. They stop their ears. They—they—they they, they rush at him. He has no choice but to uh, live out the effects of that witness that he gave. Yes. And what is the effect? It's his own martyrdom. It's his own, his own death. It's, it's so, it's so striking. This yeah. story. You know, he, it's true. He, he's not pursuing death. He's not looking to become, a, he's not making himself a martyr. What no. he's pursuing is faithfulness to the Lord and to, and to provide a good witness. And if that brings death, come what may, you know, so be it. But um, that's not, that's not his goal per se. So, very good. I'm, I'm comforted also by the words, uh, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Yes. Uh, it, just, it just seems like there's such a rescue in yep. that from the Lord. I mean, this is horrific, and we would all, I think, I know I would shy away from this very experience, and yet it's like God in his mercy just sort of puts him to sleep. And Yes. What, it's wow. true. It, this is, I think, this is part of the ongoing Christian transfiguration of what, uh, you know, what uh, Joseph says in Genesis 50. You meant this for evil, but God intended it for good. So, you know, what, what was in the ancient world the surest sign of, of shame and dishonor and pain and suffering, the cross becomes the sign of redemption. And death gets turned into sleep. And through the ministrations of our Lord Jesus and through his death and resurrection, he is turning upside down those things that seem the most fearful or the most shameful or the most frightening. Now they have been uh, reconfigured by the work of our Lord. So that's, that's right. It is. It's very comforting. Um, that being said, I want to point this out too. Number six on, on the handout here. Hope in Christ doesn't preclude great lamentation. And I just think, I, you know, I, I say this a fair bit. I think it bears repeating. You notice in verse 2, devout men 
buried Stephen, and made great lamentation over him. Well, does that mean that they um, did not have faith? They didn't believe that Jesus really did have the victory or that Stephen was now with the Lord? I don't think it suggests that at all. And um, sometimes there's this sense that, well, as Christians, we shouldn't grieve or we shouldn't lament, we shouldn't weep, but we should always just be, be happy. And, um, you know, we don't have funerals. We only have celebrations of life because we just always want to be, you know, sunny people. And look, I'm all for being happy and whatever. Um, but <laughs> as Christians, we are able to see something deeper here, that in the midst of our grieving, we also have hope and joy. And it's not a dichotomy, dichotomy but the both, both of those things are able to exist side by side. And so, you know, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. His point there isn't to say that you won't grieve, but it's that you won't have a hopeless grieving. We have a hopeful grieving, that in the midst of our grief, still we have hope. We're not, you know, rending our garments and saying, you know, all is lost, but we're we, we are able to shed a tear, as, as I had said in one of our Wednesday services, every man's favorite memory verse, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Uh, Jesus wept. We can weep. We can grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. So I just want to take that opportunity again to, to underscore that. I think it, uh, it's worth noting. All right. Go on from there to uh, pick up at verse 4 here. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Okay, so, um, sorry, was there a comment? Okay. Um, so here you see, you're seeing this, unfold now how that persecution precipitated the promise and now verse four those who were scattered went about preaching the word it has the exact opposite effect as the opponents were hoping that it would have that it didn't squelch the the uh, those first flames of the the gospel but instead it just spread it it was like uh pouring um oil on the fire oil on the fire oh, yeah um gas on the fire and uh Water out of grease fire. Yeah, like grease fire. Um, if you are find yourself in a fire, don't call me. Call the fire department. They will be much more. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's now it's scattering even more. Um, so to uh, return to the handout number seven on page three, scattering sparks spreading. I've got some really good alliteration here today. So the scattering of the disciples it sparks the spreading of the gospel. And Paul attests to this in Philippians. He writes his letter to the Philippians from prison, and too bad for Paul, but he says to this, he insists to the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
so that the persecution and the suffering that Paul endured ends up just advancing the gospel even further. And even more succinctly, very famous quote from the early church father Tertullian in the second century, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, it's through that suffering witness of Christians that the church continues to take seed, take root, and grow and spread. And this is one of those things that just historically has been borne out in more recent times, has especially been seen um, through Southeast Asia and in, in China, um, as um, when opponents to the gospel try to tamp it down, it just ends up spreading. One example that I heard of this was in uh, Myanmar, and the government there was trying to, I mean, was essentially doing a soft persecution of Christians and, and trying to um, stop the spread of the gospel. And so, interestingly, they limited public gatherings of Christians to eight, okay? They said, you can only have eight at a time. And they thought, ha, now we're really gonna, we're gonna show them. But what it did was it just um, advanced the spread of the gospel because, okay, now instead of one gathering of people, you've got a hundred gatherings, uh, small gatherings, home gatherings of Christians. And it was just like, it was like lopping the head off of the dandelion, right? And now it was just going to spread all over the place. This has been true throughout the history of the church, and we, we see it here in, um, in Acts. Can any of you think of other examples like that of how um, scattering or suffering ends up spreading the gospel, whether it be from the scriptures or from, from history? Um, do any of you have other examples that, that come to mind of how that's happened? This isn't really an example. It's more of an analogy, sure. but kind of like the dandelion thing, but like yeah. Hydra in Greek mythology, if you cut one head off, two more grow back. Yeah. It just multiplies. Nice. That's, a, that's really good. Which uh, the Hydra was a bad character, right? Yes. Okay. But uh, that being said, that's, a, that's spot on. And that's the same idea. You try to cut off one head, now two pop up, right? It's the whack-a-mole thing. With, and uh, as much as they try to just, um, tamp down the church, all it does is it serves the very opposite purpose. This is just like what happened with Jesus himself, right? Satan thinks, okay, I've got him now, and, uh, and you know, kills the Lord, or, you know, um, leads to the Lord's death, but through that, his resurrection and um, the, the spreading of the gospel. So, good. Thank you, Grace. Other, other comments or thoughts on that? It brings to mind um, the missionaries in Ecuador that were yes. killed and the widows went back and continued the ministry, especially Elizabeth Elliot. And that has grown into a tremendous church. Yes. And it took years and years and years, but they remained faithful. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So um, Jim Elliot, the missionary Jim Elliot, who, um, who, who died uh, in serving the people in Ecuador, they were very hostile to the gospel, didn't want to have anything to do with it. And, uh, you know, similar to Stephen, you know, had the crowd rushing at him instead of stones. I think they were using um, bows and arrows. But in part, through his, his meek and compassionate witness all the way unto death, and then through the forgiveness and the persistence of his widow, Elizabeth, and others, um, the gospel took root and has flourished through that community. So that's another really good um, example. Thank you, Carla. Any other ones that come to Babylonian you? captivity. Certainly, uh, we, we're taught to kind of look at that as a very negative thing in the life of God's people. And yet, what happened was it took the truth of God and God's love to Babylon. Yep. 
and uh, forced the the king uh, a number of them actually to uh, capitulate in their in their views humble themselves and, and come to believe in the god of daniel or yes. the god of shadrach meshach and abednego as we're right. as we're taught there yeah and another another example is is jonah who himself does not want to be sent. Oh. yes and yes. and yet the whole city of nineveh uh, repent and, and convert to, to faith uh, because of it. Great. That's a great example. And one of the things I love about Jonah's story is it shows us how the Lord will use even our bad example um, to further, <laughs> <laughs> further his purposes. Like Jonah, regardless, I'm going to use you to carry out my will. You can come along or you can, uh, as Jesus will say to, uh, to Saul in chapter 9, you can kick against the goats, right? You can make this harder for yourself. You can make it easier. We'll say the same things to the kids sometimes, right? <laughs> you can do this the hard way. You can do this the, the easy way. It's up to you, but it's going to happen either way. I think in some respects, Martin Luther, though he did not die for his faith per se, yeah. you know, being um, kicked out of the church and stuck, yeah you know, and, and then how that, how that spread. Um, but I, I think it, it's, I think in modern times, we sometimes, or probably also historically, we confuse martyrs, like, like the crusaders, right? They were trying to force people to become Christian or they were fighting them. I think, I, I'm not sure those are martyrs in the same way that these people are martyrs. So suffering for, and you, you mentioned Jamalia, kind of his meek presence there and everything, suffering long suffering patience you know it wasn't a quick, this is a very quick you know kind of it seems quick as you as you read it like Stephen's yeah. dead next thing you know people are shrieking spirits are coming out of you this is happening quickly but right. i think um one it's it's slower now i think in, in some respects possibly yeah. then also this idea like this isn't like um fighting others who who hate you right it is suffering being faithful to jesus and God working through that. I don't know if you see a difference there. No, I think, yeah, I think that, I think that's a good point. Um, it's being faithful to the Lord, compassionately loving and serving others and recognizing that as it was for Jesus and so will be for his disciples, people are not going to always accept that or receive that. Um, but it's not a matter of the, the church taking up arms, either literally or even figuratively against uh, an unbelieving world, but continuing to hold out the hope of the gospel, calling them to repentance, no question, but uh, nevertheless announcing the, the good news. And if suffering comes as a result of that, then so be it. And we strive to be faithful under those circumstances, but we don't go seeking it out. And that's the foolish thing. And, and Luther would say, um, look, uh, one of his beefs with the, with the monks of his day was you are, rather than accepting the cross that Christ lays upon you, you're going to seek your own cross. And uh, he'd say, you don't need to seek any crosses. They, the crosses come. It's just a matter of when they come, what do you do with them? How do you handle them? And uh, I think that's still very much the, very much the case today. Um, I want to uh, conclude just with one last thought, and next week we'll pick up with, with Simon the Magician. Um, but just to, to note at the end of that paragraph, verse 8, says, so there was much joy in that city. You know, we started out at the beginning asking what is the most meaningful fruit of the Spirit for you. And for me, I really think joy is the one that has always 
um, gripped me the most, what I pray for and what I desire and what I find to be oftentimes most compelling in others um, is joy. And uh, you see that here um, with the, the witness of the disciples. But uh, you know, I mentioned Galatians 5. But these verses that um, you might overlook, but then they, they just jump out of you when you see it. Jesus saying in John 15, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I mean, how often do you think of that as being the goal or the upshot of the Lord's ministry? Forgiveness, yes. Compassion, mercy, sure. But joy, joy is not just some, you know, bottom of the barrel byproduct of the gospel, but it's right there at the very top. Jesus' intent and aim is that our joy might be full. And even before that, in the announcement of the angels at the Lord's birth in Luke chapter 2, the angel said to them, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. As we're seeing it here in Samaria, going to these, these folks who had been considered um, you know, uh, the, the ones who were religiously uh, and spiritually uh, unaccepted, not accepted by the Jews, but there was much joy, great joy for all the people. And again, I don't think that's an accident for Luke to be including that, but uh, this is part and parcel of the good news that it brings great joy. We'll leave it. Go ahead. That's the uh, Bible study that the ladies group is doing. Joy by Deb Burma. That's right. The study of Philippians, right? Yes. 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 And uh, joy is just so interwoven in that letter in particular. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Well, I rejoice that you guys are able to uh, join us today. And uh, for those of us up here in Arcadia, we can rejoice in what looks like it's going to be a beautiful day. Um, Go in the Lord's peace, and we will see you again soon. Take care, all. Bye. 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 Have a great day.